<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Friday, February the 11th. This is the first time we're ever doing this on a Friday, so welcome. Um, it'll be very interesting for us, actually, as the host to sort of, I guess, get a sense for whether participation will be higher, lower, or whatever. But that's why we record this and share it out afterwards. So, anyways... Um, Lots and lots of stuff going on. Um, I, I did, Brian, just want to sort of bring up something that's you know been circling the interwebs lately, uh, because I think it's actually very, very important. Um, and it is somewhat related to what we're going to be talking about later on today. Um, by the way, I should, I guess, say hello to Brady Dale, who's here with us, joining us from Coindesk. Um, he's been with no us before. Coindesk, the Defiant, the Defiant. Oh, my God. I'm, uh, you know? Okay. Thank you. The Defiant. Very important. Um, and... Uh, so the thing that I wanted to start with actually was a number of conversations that I've been having lately actually about, of course, um, what's going on with Spotify and Joe Rogan. I feel like this conversation has been like talked to death. And so I don't mm. want to rehash a lot of the stuff that's happened, but both as podcasters and as someone who actually I'm currently taking a, a course with Rob Reich um, about technology and ethics and AI um, and law. And it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of folks who are actually like working at tech companies who are in this course and are building these systems and are thinking about how to design and architect, you know, these, I don't know, filtration surfaces for lack, lack of a better word. And the thing that we've been talking about, and, and Brian, I'd love to sort of, I don't know, I guess, get your, your take, your reaction to this, um, mm-hmm. is whether we're entering into kind of a, a conversation about algorithmic paternalism and essentially the concept is that uh, these social networking platforms have gotten you know so big and so powerful and they distribute so much content so much information to so many people uh, all over you know in the world and and so on that um it's they're, they're they're almost like too dangerous and that we can't actually um traffic in ideas that that well, ultimately can and do harm people. So I guess I wanted to get your take on, on that concept and that, that framing. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> that's a, that's a whole episode. <laughs> I mean, look, specifically look. given this, this moment, right. And I think the thing that I'm, yeah. I'm struggling with is here we have Spotify, which wants to be sort of an audio distribution platform. However, yeah. obviously they have paid to make Joe Rogan, other people's content exclusive. And so then the question is, to what degree are they responsible for, let's say, filtering or reviewing the content that gets placed on their platform? Um, you know, right. Like uh, I, I right? said on the show that, that one day I, I quoted um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Spires, Spears, Spires, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, about um, just edit him, just edit him. Yeah, <laughs> and then you could keep him on the platform, but you know, yeah. But but I think the the question is is does that only apply to Spotify exclusive? 
podcasts or does it apply mm. to all podcasts, you know, which we of course would fall under. And yeah. I think that's where these platforms, which are also somewhat like platishers become a little bit, um, it's, it's, it's harder to sort of imagine whether or not there needs to be equal treatment to all or whether there is specific treatment to some, which are sort of like, I don't know, the brand bellwethers, um, of the platforms. Okay, this is not a perfect analogy, but um, one of the things from the beginning of the internet that's always been there is um, porn and child porn, uh, mm-hmm. right? And and so, um, I, I mean, maybe in, in worst cases this has happened, but the government's never going to go after a web browser. Exactly. They, I think this is where it, after, it confuses me because right. I've been thinking about Spotify as a kind of browser, frankly, right? So mm-hmm. the difference might be the way in which Spotify consumes, you know, the RSS feed of the podcast and then distributes it. But is it, you know, really that different? Like you're not putting the RSS link in specifically like you do in iTunes. So does that make it less of a browser because it is filtering, you know, the content well, and then sort of regurgitating it? Uh, in the, can I, in the can user's I jump experience? In on this one, yeah, please, of course. Uh, well, just like Ashley at Hot Pod pointed out that like if if Rogan had just never gone to Spotify, none of this would have ever been an issue. And, right. and all right. the platforms, to your point, all the platforms could have just edited whatever they wanted. You know, like Google Music, Spotify, Overcast, they could just all knock out whatever episode they wanted. They could all do their individual. This, you know, it's because it's decentralized. This is decentralization. Like they could have done knocked out whatever they individually objected to yep. and then he could have still done his thing. It, 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 I think most of us think it would be crazy for like the whole internet to try to shut something out, but like individual distributors can't, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think Rogan's insane that he didn't think this was going to obviously happen, <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, it totally was, but yeah, like if, if he just had never gone on Spotify each platform would have had, it would have been a non-issue. But so when I, when I make the analogy of child porn and web browsers, the thing is, is that, um, you know, the argument would be that, uh, if, if, if you get something bad in a tool that is, you know, versus somebody had to host it, somebody had to put it on there. And yeah, then it's, the it's not a perfect analogy, right? Because you could right. have your porn star on OnlyFans, and then if they right. dip into not like child porn, obviously they're going to get kicked off the platform. So there is but some the, level the, the, of the, control. The next layer is that the only place that you can get Joe Rogan right now is yeah, Spotify. That's right, exactly. Spotify paid him $100 million. So yeah. There's really, as much as, listen, I have listened to Joe Rogan. He, he's one of the first podcasters I ever started listening to, right. to be quite right. honest with you. Right. Um, so I am not anti-Joe Rogan. I am not, I do not have a, a side in this fight. Obviously, I would take a side against um, uh, podcasters being uh, deplatformed or whatever. Yeah. Um, however, you can't get away from the fact that they paid him a hundred million dollars and there's only one place you can get them right now. And you and I have talked about, uh, specifically what you just said about, um, did he know this? You and I have talked offline about the fact that, Oh, I think he did. And here's the thing. You can take the hundred million dollars. You can get the sort of reach and distribution of Spotify for three years. I think the contract is, and then he knows he can go do whatever he wants. It was a no lose for him because the audience will follow him. 
Well, there right. is there is a little lose for him, Brian, because I we don't really know what the deal is, but it sounds like the deal was performance based. Like I don't think he just mm. got a hundred million dollars. Yeah, you know, that's true. That's true. Which is probably part of why we got the apology, right? True. There probably was yeah. some provision in there that, like, if you really piss all of our listeners off, you got to like, <laughs> right. you know. So, like, you know, I don't think Rogan would have otherwise apologized. Like, they, they were. Yeah, he's he's got to say- have like a very nice kind of carrot, you know, at the end of his tenure there. Mm-hmm. I would also say though, then. He's not. He's not crying because he's his his profile has only multiplied from being on right. Spotify. Totally. It's only multiplied by this controversy. So again, if Spotify next week came out and said, "Listen, we're cutting ties with Joe Rogan, and maybe he only gets twenty million dollars of the hundred million, it doesn't matter because yeah, he can fine. go back to RSS and yeah. the audience is going to go with him. So totally okay. Anyway. Well. I, I, like I said, I mean, there's been plenty of analysis. I've been listening to you, lots of other podcasts about this and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that this actually ties into our broader conversation about DAOs and governance, but I don't want to make that we connection might get there, yeah. too on the nose. So I know, Brian, you had a second topic, so let's, let's, let's go there. Yeah, so um, the only things that I get interviewed for these days are the dot-com bubble, and um, crypto stuff, because to the degree that my book still sells, um, crypto folks love my book to try to figure out see if like, there's is, it, is history parallels in history. Right, right, exactly. It, what can we learn from the first 25 years of the internet, uh, and is it applicable to? Yeah. So anyway, um, I did an interview earlier this week about. Um, Bubbles bursting, and it was it was related to what we've been talking about about like the the stock market going down yep. and the our last technology episode. stocks going down and stuff. So right, exactly, and um, so I uh, you know I talked a lot about it and, and did the bubble bursting thing, and I was like you know it doesn't happen all at once, and um, you know it, it, things can like you know the, the the bubble bursting. Everyone always says March two thousand, but it really the bubble didn't fully burst until. 9/11. So that was more than a year later. Mm-hmm. So it was a good 18 months of a slow motion sometimes not always slow motion. To what degree actually so so you know given that we have the pandemic do you think that there's mm-hmm. um, I guess I don't know what uh, would the you know causation be with 9/11, right? Because that was such a shock to the psyche and then like it led into war and like all these things, but obviously the sort of dot com bomb was was you know ticking well, and it was going to explode. That's kind of the point that I want to get into is yeah. that um so uh, the 9-11 happening was sort of like the icing on the cake, but there was months and months and months of things going down, Yahoo going down, Amazon being a $5 stock and things like that. Even, even 2008, people forget this, like things happened, Bear Stearns or whatever, what was the first one that blew up? That like happened in March, hmm. and it wasn't until right. like the fall that things, like, so there was a full most of a year where things were slow motion <laughs> blowing up. But th- this is my point. The way the interviewer was asking me the questions made me realize that people's recent experiences with mm. things happening was, oh, well, of course you knew in 2008, you know, things were going to blow up. Or you knew the pandemic happened and so the stock market crashed. And so it, these were like moments in time where you had, well, you knew that things were going bad. And I was like, did you? Mm. Like at the time you didn't know. And so this is the other thing that I had in my notes, Chris, is, at, around that same time, like Steven Sanofsky has been tweeting like pictures of like um, 
phones that were coming out around the launch of the uh-huh. iPhone. And, you know, the ha ha thing is, is that, well, the iPhone happened and then everything, everyone knew that it was over for Nokia and BlackBerry. No, they no. didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, mean, I remember like, that it was barely a working phone when it first came out. It would drop calls well, all the time. And not only that, but like the first CES I ever went to was the one around the time when the Palm Pre came out. Yep. And I remember being Palm OS being was like, actually well, quite good be, at the time. How many? Right. And like, we don't know who's going to win. And like, there could be multiple winners in this market space. And it turns out there was only two. And like, that's the weird thing about looking back in history where yeah. it's like, well, of course the iPhone came out and then it was all over for everybody that didn't have a slab of glass. And I'm, no, that's not true. And even if you look at the Steven Sinatra, like, you know, BlackBerry didn't, it's not like the iPhone came out and BlackBerry crashed down to zero. It was a mm. slow motion thing. And, and the point that I want to make is not only that things, the last couple crashes we've had happened in sharp periods of time, but it can be a slow motion thing. The other thing is, is that you don't know in the time, you can't be sure. And this actually relates into crypto. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, well, if if we're talking 10 years from now and crypto has taken over the world and it'll be so obvious to everyone, well, well, crypto was so much better and so you had to know. No, right now, we don't know that crypto, like there's so many people that are skeptical of it. Like people, once the history happens and it's clear which way history is going, people forget that in the moment you cannot be certain. And there are tons of people that are not certain. And, and like even, you know, uh, Microsoft's lost decade in the 2000s. Like, I remember when the Zune came out and everyone was like, well, this is it for the iPod because, you know, Microsoft is going to kill the iPod. You know, in the moment, you can't know. Yeah. Um, and that, that's just kind of the point is that um, people that are like uh, retroactively looking at history and being like, well, of course the iPhone won and it was over for Nokia and, and BlackBerry and stuff. In the moment, it, it didn't feel like that. I don't know. I don't, totally. I don't know if that's a profound point, but I agree. The fall of ROM took 300 years, similarly. I, right. <laughs> right. It's been like and, barely 20 for us. And the generation before the last Roman emperor, the, Rome was still making a comeback. So if you were born into it, you could have still been confident that Rome would continue. And you would look back and be like, it's been around for 600 years. It's not going to be dead in my lifetime, you know. Um, all right, my, my second topic, and then Brady, this this will lead us into talking stuff with you more specifically. <laughs> um, the uh, <laughs> the great uh, Bonnie and Clyde of the crypto world <laughs> that got outed this week. Um, oh man, I love this story. Can we do this the whole time? <laughs> no, well, we, hey, story. we might. It's it's fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you know how many times I've made the point about like um, when people talk about regulation in crypto, but but in tech and stuff like the fact that these guys got caught. I know they got caught because things are on the blockchain, which we can get into that too, Brady. Like, you know, <laughs> if you're going to do crime, maybe don't do it on, on some the blockchain. of these blockchains, right? But but the the point is is that the, these people that lost their money they're going to get it back and so things like know your customer laws and things mm-hmm. like that like when people in crypto are so maximalist about decentralization I'm like great that's I'm with you philosophically but the the analogy that I made on the show one time was you know I'm for the environment I'm for protecting 
the earth and things like that and allowing natural processes to happen. But if we came up with technology to prevent hurricanes and earthquakes, I'd be for that too. Right? So when I, when I say that, like, there is reg- when you talk about regulation, some regulation is good because it means that if your stuff gets stolen, you can get it back. Um, well, the crypto answer to that, Brian, would be yeah. the, the, what they would say is fine. Just let us have the option, you know, mm. like mm. let allow us to exist without it and don't force us into it. If we don't, if we want to have financial surrender, right. let us have it. But if we want to have regulated institutions, people want to do that. That's cool too. You know, but like, let us have it. That that would be the answer. When you when there are people that I see that like their NFTs get stolen and they're running to um, OpenSea or whoever to to try to get them back, and they're like, you know, um, but then I, I've also seen quotes from people that are like, well, this is just the game. It's all in the game, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it, what do you? It, you're deeper in the crypto world than either of us. Like, is that sort of uh, a a common thought? That's like, look. Um, I knew what I was getting into doing this stuff, and so if my MetaMask wallet got fished, that's just that's just the way it goes. Wouldn't someone like that want some sort of a mechanism to get their NFTs back? Well, I mean, uh, I guess. I mean, I agree. That's the game. You should know better. Uh, but you know, I think a good solution for that is insurance. You know, like either OpenSea offers insurance. You have a premium program that has insurance, or you know, you buy some kind of insurance, you know, but like, um, but once you, like, if you create some way that like you can, someone steals a thing and you can just yoink it back, well, then there's no reason to have a blockchain anymore. We just have a centralized database. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I mean, the blockchain is a really crappy way to do things unless you want censorship resistance. And then if you do, um, then you've got to do it that way. And you have to accept both the pros and the cons. What has been the, um, response to the Bonnie and Clyde story this week in the crypto space, because I feel like a lot, you know, some of the circles that I run in are crypto skeptics. So it's sort of like, they're just, you know, munching popcorn being like, see, you know, crazy crypto wild West world. This is what happens or whatever. But like, what do, what do crypto people think about um, these, (laughs) these two crazy kids? Well, I mean, we think it's crazy too. I mean, I lost half a day. I'm just like, you know, like, <laughs> look, look at, looking at the content of Razzleton, you know, I mean, she's glorious. I mean, this is what, this is a part of what I love about being a crypto journalist. Like nothing's ever normal, right? It's just like, <laughs> it's like we, we found out who has the Bitfinex money and they are insane people, you know, like, of course they are. Like, I just, I, this is what I love. It's just like, they weren't, it wasn't just two boring brothers from a Russian, you know, mob ring, you know, like who were just mm. like, I don't know, we figured out a hustle. No, it was Razzlecon, you know, like, I mean, it's like this, this, this version of the simulation crypto. is so good. It's just, you know, endless yeah. entertainment. Well, I mean, I guarantee you that six figure uh, things have already been signed for screenplays on this and, and, and <laughs> the casting's already happening. I hope yeah. so. Oh my God. But like, you know, people are really curious about what it indicates. I mean, well, so, God, there's so many things to say about it. Um, I kind of have an obsessed on Razzlecon for the last couple of days. The big debate is, were they the thieves or did they just have it? Mm. I personally, oh, right. the guy Eric Wall wrote a really great Twitter thread about this where he talks about how Razzlecon, Heather or whatever, Heather Morton, I think, or something like that, um, whatever her name was, you know, she comes off as so nutty, but actually she's she's probably really quite smart. And you, if you dig mm. into it, like it seems like she is really pretty, pretty, pretty intelligent. 
And the more I think about it, if I were, if someone were asking me to bet a hundred bucks right now, I would bet that they are actually the thieves, just because one, what Eric pointed out in his thread, and I can hunt it down and and uh, post it in the space, but um, was she's done talks and stuff about um, about social uh, engineering, social engineering, right? Yeah, and, and yeah. when you when you read between the lines of stuff that Finex has said about the hack. In retrospect, it starts to seem – it seems like they hinted that it wasn't a technical hack. Um, and then the other thing is like – the other thing that doesn't make sense is just like if – like why did they have basically all of it? You know, like if, if there's other people involved, that's not how mm. crime rings work. You know, you don't, you don't let one right. person six years later hold on to all the loot. You know, you split it up. And So, so like, can I – let me, let me um, just pause for a second here and like uh, explain that – they were charged with essentially trying to launder th- this crypto, right. but they were not specifically charged with the hack. So that would mean right. either somebody else so hacks it like and is like, goods? right, here you go, try to fence this for me, <laughs> which mm-hmm. doesn't make a ton of sense. Like, sure, we'll hold uh-huh. it for you. Um, yeah, right. Uh, or or whatever. And, and look, maybe they just... Well, no, they, but Brian, I mean, that one could of the things, it yeah. means that they don't have any evidence that they, they can't prove that they did it. All they know right, is they right. have it. You know, like, and that's what I think it is. It's like they probably did it, but, but the cops have no proof that they did it. But they know they had it. Like, right. they know that. And right. it's stolen property. It's $6 billion. <laughs> it's like the Lambos yeah. just yeah. showed yeah. up yeah. on my lawn. lawn. I mean, I didn't put them there. Yeah. Um, is it... Um, I feel like one of the things that I've heard, and I said this week, is that um, I feel like law enforcement over the last few years, uh, blockchain has become their best friend. Because if they're forensic enough and patient enough, like it's literally forget about fingerprinting and like, you know, surveilling and wiretapping. It's like just wait, watch the ledger. And eventually you can connect the dots and find the people that did the dirt. Like, so what, what's the thinking in terms of that? I know that there are, there's, there's coins and, and, and blockchains where the whole point is anonymity. So it's, you, you know, and, and, and you want to wash it and like, but, um, the idea, it's, it's, that's, it's, that's, this is why you love being a crypto journalist. On the one hand, everyone's like, oh, uh, crypto's only good for, uh, uh, criminals and money laundering. And then at the same time, no, it's not. <laughs> So, right. What the, what the heck? It's so annoying. It's like every time Chainalysis puts out one of their reports on crypto crime, what the the story that every mainstream media does is like you know two billion dollars in crypto crime this year, and like all, and what you will immediately see in crypto Twitter is they're all screaming at all these outlets to be like that isn't actually what the report really. Is. I mean, it did say there was that much, but it was like two billion dollars is a part of like a trillion dollars or two trillion dollars <laughs> of like overall activity. It's like it the crime is a very small part of the business. It's, most it's overwhelmingly um it's overwhelmingly uh you know legitimate stuff and this is this is my rant on the whole environmental thing too right like look we can have our whole conversation about proof of work and you can say that it like it's environmentally destructive but you're only able to quantify it because it's transparent there's almost no other industry that you can you can so clearly quantify its impact on the environment so the fact that it's giving mm. you the data is what it's enabling you to make the critique to build the you narrative and basically yeah exactly it's like mm-hmm. it is it is being open in a way that nothing else is and so you can yell at it about this thing but nothing else is open like that similarly you can look at the blockchain and you can see that a certain amount of crime is happening just like it is happening in every other industry um except for you can you put the pieces together if you're good at it like chainalysis is you can kind of quantify it 
And so you can act as if that's the whole story when everyone who's really in it knows it's not even close to the whole story. It's a very small piece of the story. But like try completely getting crime out of any industry, especially one that involves money. Like you can't. That's what I was going to ask. Like, how much of this stuff actually goes on in the normal banking industry, and yet there's no money for it? I mean, the fact that like people still use, you know, probably password one two three as their bank credentials is seriously a huge problem. So, just well, because this is why got... crypto people get so mad about KYC, and this is why I hmm. think KYC is so bad, hmm. is because we're forcing every single person, every single entity that touches any kind of money to keep a full record of everyone who does anything, hmm. and we wonder why identity theft is up and up and up every single year. <laughs> we have so many honeypots that are have all of this information about people and we can we can say like oh we're maybe present preventing the next big terrorist attack but we are what we are definitely causing is several billion dollars of really normal people losing a lot of money and having real <laughs> tragedies in their lives every year because there's so many copies of everybody's personal identity in so many places it's it's child's play to steal. You know so it's just like So by the I was going to say, by the way, uh, KYC is know your customer, and these right. are the laws that banks have to to, to prevent. It. I, I, they mostly put in place are laws that only go back to people act as if they're like something that's written in ancient stone, and we've done this the drug war, time. right? They only go back. They only go back to nine eleven. That's when it, that's when it started. KYC oh, really? AML really kicked in after nine eleven. So it's only been twenty years. Somehow, Western civilization was able to exist without them before that, um, but now somehow it's impossible. Um, so, you know, like I understand the justification for these things, but I also think that there are some deeper points that the crypto world makes that aren't completely crazy. Um, I wanted to make one more point before we move on to the topic. By the way, Brady, did you have a, a, a heart out or anything tonight? No, I'm, I'm open. Sweet. Okay. Give us at least another half an hour. <laughs> Brian's going to be caffeinated very soon, so this could get very interesting. Oh, I'm caffeinated right now. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> um, I, the, the one more point that I wanted to make was um, <laughs> the, the thing. I wish I well, were. listen, I'll take, I'll take a, a, a gummy at the top of the hour. But, um, the, uh, the, You're the mixing point your uppers and your downers, that, Brian. What's going on here? Well, I, I, Sorry, after continue. I do these shows, I, I'm always buzzing, so that's why I need to take a gummy. Um, the best, the guy with the best OPSEC in history is Satoshi, because not only mm. was he on forums for years and years and years, and we've never been able to figure out who he was. Totally. And he, he's never moved those coins. Like, because <laughs> as the minute he even like looked at them, people would be like, oh my God, there yep. was a breeze that went over that wallet or something like that. So, yeah, like, <laughs> totally. You know, if you like the, the the thing, one of the most amazing things about Satoshi, aside from the fact that we never figured out who he was and he invented the, the thing, and so it was the genius. The fact that we still have never figured out who he is, like he he's the smartest guy ever because there's no one that's been who was the guy that came forward trying the, to figure out like Florida man or something who claimed to be Satoshi. So, yeah, but we can't go too far into that because people are litigious. But right, yeah. Brady. I don't even know that. Like, I've had a lot of weird people come to me claiming very strong evidence of someone being Satoshi. It's like, I don't even know. But it, until someone moves some coins or someone posts something on Bitcoin Talk, we don't know. You know? Fair. I Sorry. Uh, uh, all right. I'm, I'm Googling for the man there. that claims to be Satoshi, but the first result is man claims to be a time traveler, which could be the same thing, actually. <laughs> Yeah, probably. That would make, in fact, that would make sense. That would solve right? the whole mystery. It, the whole situation. thing just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants. The right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Um, okay, Brady, we, we brought you on because um, before the Bonnie and Clyde of 2022 this week, um, we were talking a lot about DAOs. Um, and um, what was it, the ENS DAO and things like that. But yes, I don't want to yes. necessarily get into that ENS. I keep saying ENS and people don't do that. Uh, yeah, DNS, DNS, yeah. Yeah, because it's like DNS. DNS. All right. You don't say DNS. DNS, oh, right. Oh, shit. <laughs> makes so much sense. I know you say GIFs, but um, in this okay. case, it's DNS. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but what, what it occurred to me is that uh, we've but, but been by using the way, ENS, on- Ethereum name service, sort of like the Web3 version of DNS. Okay, continue. Yeah, right. Got it. Um, we've been using the term DAO on this show, and I had never done a piece or done a long read that explains what DAOs are. And I realized that I don't kind of know fully how they function. So um, this is a wide-open thing. And let's start from uh, from the very beginning. You were saying to us offline that, that DAOs have been around for a long, long time, like this idea is not of recent vintage. Is that right? No, it's not. It's not. But you know what? Actually, I, this occurred to me. I want to say something else before I say that. Um, okay. So, so crypto. Uh, I, I had a series I started at CoinDesk at one point, and I never really finished about philosophy and crypto. And there's a lot of interesting overlaps of crypto and philosophy. 
and, and crypto gets treated like it's this one monolithic culture, which I'm sure you guys know it's not really. Right. But right. like one of the things that is interesting about it is how like but there, there are a lot of common themes. In there. There's a lot of things a lot of people generally agree about. But one of the things I do really like is that like I mean, I love I love most of the blockchains. I think most of them are great, especially the big ones. I definitely love Bitcoin. I love Ethereum. You know, I, I, I like I like a lot of them. But but like. One thing I do really like is that Ethereum is, kind of has a unique culture, which is hard to appreciate externally. Like, it just looks like it's a part of the whole crypto thing. And it is. But, like, but Ethereum attracts, like, a different kind of breed of people. <laughs> and, like, and, and, like, it's very much, you know, I mean, they want to get rich. I mean, and they've done a great job at it. Um, like, they, they like money. But, but they, they are, like, whereas Bitcoin is very much about, like, myself and my personal sovereignty and, like, you know, me against the world and, and independence. Ethereum is, is much more about like doing things together and inventing something greater collectively, you know? Um, and, and that kind of spirit. And so I think DAOs really speak to that. And so like, so I'm going to give a quick history of DAOs, which is pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Um, so this guy, Dan Larimer, who has a complicated history in, in crypto, um, he, uh, is the found, he was the guy who created the EOS blockchain. He's um, he also created the Steemit blockchain, and he did this hmm. this other one before that. His name is kind of eluding me, but um, he is a, for whatever you think of Dan Larimer and his tendency to jump ship on projects that he launched. Um, <laughs> he is a smart guy; like nobody disagrees with that. And he invented this idea of the decentralized autonomous corporation. That is like a piece of code that does things. And pays people for things that it needs. And Bitcoin is a decentralized autonomous corporation from that standpoint. All it really needs is people to mine and it'll pay them for mining. And beyond that, Bitcoin doesn't really care, right? But, but so his idea was this could be a larger thing. Well, then Ethereum comes along and Ethereum says, well, we don't really care about corporations and we don't really care about um, kind of like pure code things. What we care about is how people work together. So this idea of decentralized autonomous organization came along. And the, and the thinking was, and, and I'm kind of a little bit telling a story here, but I think it's somewhat accurate. The thinking was that with Ethereum and with blockchains, you can create new methods of, for people to coordinate. Okay, so then, so then there was. Let me let me stop you right there because 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 Ethereum is programmable in the sense that the simplest form would be like a contract. Like I know that mm -hmm. early things on Ethereum were like sort of prediction markets and things like that. So if the Bengals win the Super Bowl, it's it's something that it's a fact that is verifiable. And once it's on the blockchain, if you bet or something like that, and, and so there's contracts you can do, and that, so and you extrapolate onto that. Um, you could do insurance and you could do actual yeah. organizations and, and businesses and stuff. Right. And, when, and then like a lot of the things that you've heard about on Ethereum, just to sort of nail that down, they might be run by DAOs, but they oversee contracts. So, for example, you know, like Uniswap, which is a well-known thing. But if, if folks don't know, it's this, it's, this, it's this thing on Ethereum that lets you trade different tokens, um, you know, readily. We could arrest and throw in jail every single person on the planet who's ever touched Uniswap or ever done anything with it. Uniswap would still run until as long as Ethereum kept running. It doesn't need any people to, to function, you know. Um, 
And so no, wait, wait, wait. Uh, I want to, I want to understand something about what you just said, because when we talk about um, decentralized autonomous organizations, there's an implication of sort of organizing of humans. But what you just said yeah. is that there's essentially like a virtual machine somewhere that's running code and the thing will just keep running, whether those humans are there with the organization. So, like, but it'll never change. Right. It needs, needs I see. to change. So the, so the sort of organization, organization piece are the gardeners it. who maintain the contracts. Yep. Okay. But it, it will stay just as it is till the end of time. Yep. If, if everyone is taken away, you know, um, so, but, but obviously the world changes and it would become pretty crappy eventually if it never updated. So you need a way to update it and shift it. And, and that's what the organization is for. Um, so, so DAOs were a dirty word in Ethereum for a number of years. And the reason they were a dirty word oh, is because right. really early yep. in Ethereum history in 2016, this, this company called Slocket came along. And they were an Internet of Things company, and they thought we could, they could use the blockchain for Internet of Things. They weren't getting venture funding the way they wanted to. And so they said, you know what? We're going to create our own venture funds on the blockchain, and we're going to call it the DAO. Um, and people will put in money, and they'll get a token back. And that token will, be, will allow them to vote on how the whole DAO invests its money. And, of course, they did it because they hoped the DAO would agree that they should invest in Slockets technology. But what happened was there was a vulnerability in the DAO's contract. I think there was like $60 million in there, something like that. And a mm-hmm. bunch of the money was stolen. And at that time, that was like a lot, you know, like back, <laughs> right, back right. then, that was like most of the money on, on uh, Ethereum. And most of the money was stolen. And so then, um, and so then a really controversial thing happened in, in Ethereum history that, you know, we, you always hear that everything's immutable in the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, but they decided to like roll it back. And kind of give everyone their money back. And that's why today there is Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And, you know, controversial to say, but it's true. Ethereum Classic is the original chain. I mean, that was that's the immutable chain after <laughs> the hack. And Ethereum, as we know it now, is a fork, you know. Yep. Um, and so because of that, because this and that and that nearly wrecked Ethereum, um, you know, it was it was a really dark moment in Ethereum history. And um, and. It also that was the first thing that really drew the SEC's attention. They wrote a, a paper about it that basically said this was clearly a security that we, you made, and we're not going to go after you guys now, but don't do it again. And uh, and that led everyone to be like really scared of the word DAO for several years. Um, well, not even several. I guess it was really it was like 2019 when they first started coming back again. So like three years. Um, but people were like, no one wanted to talk about DAOs for a while. And then all of a sudden they did again. They started to be comfortable with it. Um, and but Ethereum was much bigger and much more robust at that point. Um, so so yeah, I mean that's important history to understand. I mean it's, it it is ancient history, but like there was sometimes you'll hear people talk about the DAO and the oh. DAO was was that back in the day. And this is one last thought on that. Um, you know, this is this is just entirely my view. But like the the point of the DAO was it was um, it was this thing that you joined and then you got to be a part of this venture fund. And then a year and a half or so later, the ICO boom happened. And Mm. I would argue that what everyone realized is that Ethereum itself was just the DAO and you could just join whatever investment you wanted, you know, on it. You know, people would say like, we're going to do this. Want to give us some money? And people were like, sure. And like, and so that is really that was the actual that was the actual DAO. The ICO boom was Ethereum as a whole, just being a DAO and funding things. People got to join the investments that they wanted. Um, okay, formal. 
Formal document one. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. But, 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 but before we get to the present day, let, let me back up for a couple basics. So you're mentioning tokens. So the on a base atomic level, the functionality of a DAO is ownership of the token because the token gives you voting rights. Correct. Yeah. So so um, so the DAO and <laughs> this is one of the I think kind of one of the dumbest things I ever wrote. I was at the Observer at the time. And like I wrote something that like <laughs> as the DAO was happening that was like the DAO has already worked because the tokens are worth more than the money that's been put in. You know, um, I think that was roughly this essay that I wrote, <laughs> and the whole thing fell apart, and I felt kind of dumb. Um, but yeah, the idea was you you put in money and you got this token back, and the tokens were instantly tradable, and so some people and you know you just had the token that represented a vote in what the overall entity did um and there was some formula you put in like one ETH, you got like three DAO tokens or whatever the number was and it was entirely just you had as much power as money you put in and because these things were tradable and people believed the DAO was going to do well the value of them started shooting up really fast and so people just started selling off their tokens because they made money instantly um but yeah the core of the core i the, i mean this is this is like i said there's a lot of variations in how DAOs work but in the purest mm. early DAO, it's like you put in money, you get tokens back, sort of um, pro rata to the total pool of the tokens you have in, and that that is your amount of voice in the DAO. So, um, and again, I, I will cop to being uh, an ignoramus when it comes to crypto stuff, but in, in the way that blockchains, you know, one of the fears is, is if you control... Uh, more than 50% of the nodes, you can take over a blockchain or whatever. So are, are you saying that it's baked into a DAO that if I had enough money and the wherewithal to do it, you could buy your way into control of any DAO? Or is there also all sorts of levels of preventing that from happening? Yeah, there's a ton of there's a ton of variation here. I mean, like, the truth is, there's tons of DAOs out there that, like, say they're DAOs, but, like, really... Like five people honestly just execute everything and they do generally just do what the DAO says, but they don't actually really like have to, you know, like, um, you know, like I was just kind of considering maybe doing a story right now. There's this there's um, kind of one of the most grassrootsy projects in the history of Ethereum is this thing called SushiSwap, which is it, which is there's a whole very interesting story to the early history of SushiSwap, but it was created to kind of counter Uniswap, the decks I talked the decentralized exchange I talked about earlier, the place you could exchange. Sort of like looks rare to OpenSea. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, ish, yeah. And sushi swap, as has been the case for as long as it's been around, is going through a bit of a transition right now. And a bunch of deep pocketed people came in and said, you know, we want to take it over. We're sophisticated people. We can run this thing well and make it all work. We've, and we have enough sushi tokens to make it happen. But the way sushi set up, I think because they set it up because they don't want whales to just be able to take over whatever they want. The honest truth is the core team can just veto things and not let it go to the blockchain. And so they're just like, no, <laughs> that you don't it's like get super voting shares. Data. Yeah. It's like super voting shares. So, so like you can say that, that's not really like blockchain pure. And I'm sure some people would argue that, but you can also argue that this is kind of something the community that launched sushi swap kind of decided they want how yeah. they wanted things to be. Cause they trusted the core to be that way because, precisely because they didn't want some whales to just like 
completely take over. So there's just all kinds of variation. Like I've done some stories, like one of the things that's going on with DAOs right now is that, you know, they're getting more and more sophisticated. They have more and more money. Um, they're, they are having more and more complex organizations and like, it's nice to do, to make decisions, you know, like there's a bunch of like investment DAOs out there. They're like people just like syndicate 20 people DAO. who have some money came together, threw it all together and they, and they just invest as they decide to, they don't, they don't do everything on chain. You know, they just have a telegram group or like a, a, a signal group. And it's like, this thing came along. Is everyone good? And they get a bunch of thumbs up emojis and they're like, all right, we're giving them a hundred thousand dollars. You know, I mean, that's how they, that's how they actually work. They just don't, there's no need to actually be that formal about it, but it's still, it is coming together like on Ethereum and it's, and it's functioning in this kind of like loosey goosey grassroots Dowish sort of way. So they still call themselves DAOs, but they aren't making every decision on chain. You know, so there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers to it. Let me, well, again, uh, if you take a gummy and you're like, does <laughs> democracy really exist? Or it's starting to kick no, in. No, huh? there's, there's, there's people in the background that are really calling all the shots. But okay, wait, can I just get a couple more basic questions out of the way and then we can take this wherever, wherever we want to go? Yeah. Um, number one, uh, is it sort of a plug and play thing? Like if, like, in the way that when the ICO boom happened, like you just have to grab some code, change it a little bit, and you can have your own coin. Is that in existence now? Can you pull off the shelf a DAO and do it now? I know it's it's more complicated than that, but essentially, is it sort of plug and play like that right now? Uh, I think so. I mean, like people are sorting a lot of things out, though. I mean, like. So, for example, one of the things you're seeing more and more often with DAOs is, like, the pure idea originally was just, like, you have tokens and that's your vote. And if a decision comes up, if you've got a token, you've got a vote. But a lot of DAOs are realizing that that isn't really a great way to do things for a variety of reasons. I mean, not to go, this is a real weird crypto rabbit hole, but, like, a thing that could happen is if someone just wanted to take something over, they could just borrow a pile of tokens really quickly, vote the thing that they wanted, and then sell them off, you know, 10 minutes later. And that's not really (laughs) democracy, right? And so more and more DAOs are starting to do structures where, like, where to actually vote, you have to do some level of staking. So the, the, the real leader in this, and this is one of the hot things in crypto right now, is, is I, I, it's usually referred to as the VE model or the vote escrowed model. Hmm. But Curve, with its CRV token, they do this thing where um, it also leads to how much of the profit sharing you get on the platform, too. But, like, you have to stake your Curve. And your vote is actually proportional to how long it is until it unstakes. So you can t- stake it for a max of four years. And so if a vote happens and you just stake it and it's four, year at, four years out, your token has like the maximum voting power. But if you only stake it for six months, then it doesn't have as strong of a voting power. And the point is they want to give people who have, a, who have a, a long-term skin in the game more clout in the network. So, so we're seeing things more and more like that in order to prevent – so to keep things liquid, but also to prevent those sort of like hustles from rich people who just want to take things over and steal stuff, which, you know, Justin Sun, um, like that's just something you see a lot of times in the space. So, so I, I was I was reading this week about like even like cooling off periods where it's like, OK, we can make this decision, but it doesn't go into effect for 90 days or something. like. It's sort of like getting yeah. married in Vegas or something like it's not really legal until 72 <laughs> hours later when you yeah. sober up. Right. Well, that's yeah. a pros on sort of the cancellation thing. But but in terms of just like mm-hmm. for DAOs that even have like just day-to-day decisions, they just like – like with Curve, they have all these decisions that they have to make. They give a bunch of rewards to different participants in the network, and those rewards are constantly getting reshifted. And that's a very important vote in crypto like to vote on that. So they have reward, they have votes like every 11 days or something like that. And so people – so they want people to have 
the most vote who have the longest term commitment to, to curve. So that's, that's okay. This is this is the last one, and then I'm going to step back, and mm-hmm. and Chris can yep. go go hog on this. Um, <laughs> Uh, you mentioned legality early on, um, and what we're talking about here feels like corporate governance, sounds like corporate governance, sounds like when you're doing corporate governance, then you are talking about raising, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what, what's the what's the word I'm not thinking of right now? Um, the, you know, the, this is an, this is a um, a financial instrument that that you're talking about and things like, like that. Security, so, a, a security, yeah. security. Is there? Has anything changed with the legality of DAOs, or they've just gotten popular again, but we still haven't really sussed out um, what sort of gray area we're in here? I mean, theoretically, Wyoming has this DAO law. Right. Um, but, like, like Preston Byrne, who is a, you know, a very colorful attorney and, again, a, and a well-respected attorney in, in the crypto space, this firm, Anderson Kill, um, he's, he's a lot of fun on Twitter. He looks like about marmots a lot. Um, you know, he <laughs> kind of makes fun of the... Wyoming law, he's just like, it's just an LLC that threw Dow on the top of it. I don't really, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't get these things as well. You know, I will say that there are some big Dows out there that are just existing on their own and they don't, they don't exist in the eyes of the law, but that does, that, that does make life hard for your staff. You know, you have to have like, you know, you have to be exclusively a bunch of really wealthy people that can make that work for themselves or just be philosophically okay with that. And it also makes it impossible for you to, like, own things in the real world. Like, the best example of that, one of my favorite DAOs is this, is this DAO called Yearn. And Yearn is basically a robo-advisor for yield. It's a place where you can just drop your money into different pools. It's like Yearn.Finance or different? Yeah, Yearn.Finance, yeah. Okay. And it, has a, it also has a very colorful story. Um, one of the most interesting launches in the history of crypto, but we don't need to go into all that. But <laughs> the point is, Yearn has become uh, an entity unto itself. And as far as I know, and I've asked a million people this, Yearn exists legally nowhere in the world. It has like 30 or 40 people who work for it. They, I think they make like a lot of money, um, but like it is all just on chain. Everything happens on chain and um, you know, you get, you, you work for it, you probably make great money, but you, you make it all on chain and you got to deal with your own taxes and insurance and all that stuff yourself hmm. and just sort it out. Um, because they are just a DAO, you know, and they, they only deal with crypto things. They do everything crypto ways. And that's, that's how Yearn has always existed since it launched in, since it became a DAO in kind of mid 2020. And so some entities do do that, but more and more as, you know, like I just did a story, I think two weeks ago, um, about this company that is helping it, helping DAOs do payroll in a crypto native way, in a, in a better way, but also enabling them to do it in a way that interfaces, um, with, you know, typical corporate structures. And Mm -hmm. so they can actually give their employees benefits. So like there's different stances on this kind of thing, you know? Um, but yeah, the law hasn't really moved other than this kind of Wyoming thing, which is like maybe kind of crypto relevant or maybe it's just an LLC. I don't, I don't really know. I, I mean, so part of, I guess the, the type of questions I would like to ask are about understanding like what's actually new and novel and different versus kind of just repackaged, you know, that sort of already exists. And Brian alluded to that. I was thinking about how, um, 
you know, like I, I have some shares in publicly traded stocks. And before the earnings season, I get emails that say, hey, go, you know, vote on board of directors and things like that. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of like a DAO, except it's not, you know, decentralized or autonomous. And so those structures and, and habits and behaviors kind of already exist in the marketplace. So they're already known, right? And then, so, so it seems like we're recreating some aspects of, of corporate governance in that sense. I think one of the big differences in what you just mentioned, and I'm trying to sort of piece this together in my mind as a picture, which is like, if urine exists as purely a DAO that is on chain, then none of the people who actually do the work need to necessarily like know any of the other people involved. They can be completely anonymous. They could have a series of tokens that, you know, were disseminated through an ICO at some point. And there are proposals that are essentially raised. And then, you know, members of the DAO, people who own the tokens, essentially stake those tokens on uh, the proposal being chosen or selected. And then presuming it's all code, if, if, if the vote happens, then the, I guess the, the contract might be upgraded to reflect whatever was proposed and then things move forward. So it's different in the sense of the way that, as you said, like people can come together and I guess collectively and self-organize. And one of the important mechanisms of a DAO is sort of creating an internal structure where internal capital, which are the tokens, can actually be aggregated, used, traded, staked. You know, and there's a bunch of sort of game dynamics that are designed that allow people to participate. So is, I guess, given that framing, what are the things that you see are being sort of uniquely novel and new and different that let's say would require new laws versus actually these things are totally fine. And the legal structure that exists, you know, the, the, the sort of known one, especially in the United States, I mean, these, these participants in DAOs are all over the world. So what would be the purpose or function of, I don't know, like a land-based legal system interfacing with a DAO and why wouldn't more of it just happen on chain? Well, the reason that more of it, what the, what they care about is, is they get bigger. If they want to interface with the real world, they want to own land or Got whatever. Right. That's where like Fry's DAO exists. But, but like, um, but he, you, but I don't know if this is what you're asking exactly. But like, how is it different? And this is a really interesting question. You know, sometimes I'm out in the world and I meet young people who are like, um, how do I get involved in crypto? You know, what can I do? And I, I this is what I say all the time because I've heard so many stories like this. Um, and I, I, I think they're true. They seem to be true. Um, I've, I've, I've encountered it again and again, where, uh, uh, the thing about DAOs that people say all the time is if you're excited about one and you think it's interesting, you should just go join this discord, start paying attention, learn as much as you can. And if you have a skill to offer that's useful, you can just start doing it. And if it is actually good, you'll probably start getting paid for it. And that doesn't even just mean like coding, right? Like there's people who will just start like doing events to promote whatever it is the DAO is doing to educate people about it in different places. And, and people will be like, yeah, your events are cool. You should be a part of our marketing team. We'll start paying you to do it. You know, like Yearn has, I don't know if they're still doing it, but they put out this code a while back that was like a part of how they distributed their money was they just gave everyone who was on the team like a certain number of votes every month to be like, who's the MVPs of the company and everyone just voted on who, what they thought. And that allocated a bunch of their internal money, just like, you know, who has been the most useful. And, um, and, you know, obviously you can see how that can be gained and there can be problems with it. But the point is they just have all these interesting ways of letting people, um, 
come in, you know, MakerDAO, which is on some level the granddaddy DAO in decentralized finance, they they make this uh, stable coin called Dai. They're a, it's, they're kind of a bank, or they sort of some people call them the central bank of cryptocurrency, at least of Ethereum. Um, you know, the story of the early days of MakerDAO, and, and this is a little bit legend at this point. I wasn't there, but people say that like you know a lot of the early core team just invented their own job because it was so informal early on that people just came. And they started doing things, and then as it started being worth money, they just make just started paying them for it. You know, it's like people just made their job. But you see, like a lot more of that happening. DAOs are so much looser, and and they have they're this, they're able to function in this much less formal way that people can just show up. And if they're doing good work that's valuable to the DAO, and the DAO has money, and many of them do, they'll just reward them for it. And so that's why I always say to young people, it's just like if you're looking for a place in crypto, don't try to get a job. If you've got if you're in college, you've got some free time. Just like find a DAO that you think is cool and look for a way to chip in and it might turn into something, you know, because I hear stories where yeah. that's happening all the time. And I think that's how it's different. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines, their family group chat, their crossword puzzles, just because they're available right now or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed credible doctors and specialists. I have personally used ZocDoc to find a podiatrist when I needed one for the first time ever in my life. Go to ZocDoc.com tech meme and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash tech meme. ZocDoc dot com slash tech meme. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features Features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I, well, 
Yes and no, because I think where my mind goes, and maybe this is actually to your point, and I think what's new is that you know the blockchain exists and there's more kind of awareness and just more use of internet technologies generally. But I pinned a tweet um, very early in the space about a diagram that I did all the way back in 2004 about the spread Firefox slash Mozilla ecosystem. And it looks very, very similar to um, a diagram that Andreessen Horowitz put together to describe how sort of a a DAO is structured and it looks a lot like a cell nucleus, right? And so you kind of have like these different shells of either energy or participation and the core of course is the nucleus. And that's where, you know, the core contributors kind of are, and that's where the project really, you know, gets its, uh, I don't know, spirit of life. Um, and then the further out you go, of course, in the other sort of electron, you know, valence shells, there's less gravitational pull to the, the center and people might, you know, sort of, multi-DAO and, and go through multiple things. But the thought is that, you know, when I graduated from college and I came out to Silicon Valley, I was a volunteer in the Mozilla project in a very similar way to what you're describing. And mm-hmm. they just gave me more and more responsibilities until, you know, I ended up like starting another browser project called Flock. And so what I'm kind of thinking about is that actually a lot of this a lot of these ideas of governance and participation, actually, in some respects, and maybe there's not a direct line, but I think there might be, and Brian might have something to say about this, actually comes out of the open source world. That the no, it way totally which, does. Huh? But it totally does, Chris, but I think one thing you probably know about the open source world is for one problem it's had, and we yeah. don't know that crypto has solved this yet. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. But but there is, over time, a maintainer problem in the open source oh, world. Oh, 100%. Right? Like, yeah. You get down to like one or two maintainers because there's very little money on these very big, yeah. important projects, and no one figured out how to capture value on yeah. them, right? Yeah. And so, like, and crypto might be, maybe, and it's too early to say, doing a better job with that. Um, well, so you're right. Uh, There's a lot of parallels, but it doesn't quite, it didn't quite work. I, yeah, totally. And I think what I would add to that is, like, in the beginning, a lot of people working on open source actually weren't that worried about getting paid. Because, one, it was relatively cheap. You know, oftentimes people would have a day job. And their open source contributions were really just kind of like passion projects. And they put it out there to the world. And this was a new way to work and to collaborate and to, you know, like, the idea ideology of open source in the early days is so familiar and so similar in the DAO space. And I think you're right that the difference may be that we are now financializing these contributions in a way that's public and accountable and recorded in a way that there are no takebacks and a project just doesn't, you know, cease to exist because the maintainer decides to, you know, delete the repo or something. It's all on chain. So it creates a level of persistence, a level of visibility, a level of accountability, and because of these internal structures and systems that are created, they do or they are able to, uh, I guess, function in ways that open source projects weren't able to, as you suggest, previously. So, yeah, no one in crypto would claim that, like, they, yeah, I agree with you. No one would claim that they own nothing. Like, there, there is, they are building, they are, they are standing on the shoulders of giants, right? It's like that world is completely important to everything that's happened now. It's just that, like, getting value on the internet has enabled, has opened up some right. other possibilities, you know? Right. Right. And I think, like, you know, why I'm bringing it back to that, obviously, you know, like, that's sort of my background in tech, but also to Brian's point as kind of like an internet historian, I think it is worth seeing what, like, what, like running a diff algorithm on how things are, are new and novel now versus like how they were before, how we struggled before, how we failed before, because the technology wasn't there. Money was poison. Like we ran away from those things. And now the culture has shifted. The technology has shifted. And now there's a desire for 
you know, collaboration, or at least there's always been this desire for collaboration. And now the technology actually supports it in kind of a novel way. And one of the things that I think actually, and I'd love to get your feedback on this, the thing that seems to be the most different is the degree to which people are starting to become, and I say this sort of like broadly, both more aware of the design of organizations and collaborate, collaborative systems and autonomy and you know, just how to design organizations that don't suck. I mean, like in the context of the great resignation, it feels like people want to have more autonomy and to be empowered and to do things and to not work for these lifeless corporations that have all this bureaucracy to prevent against some of the things that transparency in the blockchain blockchain may enable. And at the same time, you still have, you know, interpersonal challenges and problems. And so the blockchain doesn't actually solve for that. So like, to what degree would it make sense to replace the design of corporations as they've existed for the, you know, most of the industrial revolution with something that is more, uh, I guess, I don't know, com- compatible with uh, the information environment that we exist in. You know what I mean? It's sort of like corporations need a reboot to catch up to the way in which people are now collaborating through the internet. And DAO seem to be the latest proposal for how to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think they're going to push the world in an interesting direction. I don't want to prognosticate beyond that. That's I fair. think we need more time and more, uh, you know, everyone in, everyone in crypto who does these things, nobody thinks that they've worked out governance yet. I mean, governance mm. is one of the most uh, yeah, talked the about conversations yeah. in there. It's just like they're, they're still working out the kink. They're excited about this new world, but no one thinks it's perfect yet. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what I'm asking, like, in terms of your sense of how you see the space. Like what's going really well and what's actually like, where are things still very challenging? And I don't want to go down this, you know, rabbit hole too deeply, but I do think that what happened with um, Brantley Milligan and ENS over the last week where, you know, tweets, historical tweets came out uh, that certainly did not put him in a good light and the community, you know, mobilized and essentially voted to oust him from his position as director of operations. And that happened very quickly. And that's sort of like, Stuff that might have happened, you know, within a corporation with an HR department, you know, sort of, you know, behind closed doors, etc. And instead, this entire thing happened more or less on Twitter in the course of like 28 or 48 hours. So that's something. And, you know, what, like, how do we make sense of that? Yeah, I think we're going to be thinking about that one for a long time. You know, and Brantley wasn't the only one. There was yeah. uh, uh, Cooper. Story. It happened to Cooper. It happened to... Uh, this, Anisha, this, yeah, I think. Anisha. Or, yeah, yeah, it's right. super rare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there'll they'll probably be some more. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we're going to see that one. That We're going to see that play out for a little bit. It, it is an interesting thing, you know, especially to see in a, in a culture that <laughs> says censorship resistance is right. so important. We'll see. Let me let me come at this from a different angle, because obviously that's a critique I mentioned on the show that like, oh, you want to be involved in a DAO, like, have you ever served on a condo board? It's it's right. chaos and annoying. And But a, a different critique from a different perspective would be the idea that um, if everything is put up to a vote, one of the critiques of you know, democracy in general is that such a small percentage of people actually vote, yeah. even mm-hmm. in the United States of America. So what yep. happens is the people that are the most committed, the people that have the most interest in doing things are the ones that push through the ideas. And so functionally, 
you don't really have a democracy because it's the ultras that get what they want done anyway. Totally. You know what I mean? You, you guys yeah. don't know this, but my prior life is as a community organizer and um, before I became a journalist. And oh, interesting. One of the things I realized as an organizer is the honest truth is that like political life isn't fun. Uh, it kind of sucks. And, <laughs> and most people don't enjoy it. And the truth is politics is dominated by people who like are deeply interested in this profoundly not fun thing but most of us would rather like play softball and hang out with our friends because that is actually more gratifying than fighting about like parking policy you know and so it leads to this weird tyranny of the boring um and that is that is like what i came away with from being a community organizer for a decade with which is not very inspiring but it is sort of how i saw things and and we do we do see that voter participation across crypto is really crappy most people are there to make money and win number go up. And so this is why, you know, this governance question gets to be a bigger, bigger deal. And what we're starting to see is more, we're also starting to see more representative democracy. So for example, um, people want to see the right thing happen, but politics is boring. And so they do things where, for example, they turn their vote over to other people that, you know, sort of protocol it's politicians. A delegation, you, yeah. Yeah, you delegate, you delegate to people. It's kind of like it's kind of like crypto senators, right? And you can yeah. see all you can also see how that goes if you go really wrong because one guy could just <laughs> represent everything, you know, and then he just controls everything. So that's why I think this stuff is still working out. But but let me talk. Let, let me go back to a topic I know was hot in this world for a while, which I think also captures why I think DAOs are exciting and interesting mm-hmm. coming out from a whole other direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we haven't really seen this yet, but I think we will. We've seen like really tiny versions of it. But like one of the things that really hit me about what was exciting about NFTs when this finally clicked for me is, you know, you create a set of NFTs like, you know, um, uh, based turtles or whatever. And uh, based turtles come out and they have all these different variations and stuff, but they give rights to their to the owners that, you know, you can do whatever you want with your turtle, right? And so you could stake your turtle. Anyways, you can stake continue. your turtle, but le- but less less exciting than that. But like more interesting than that is, this is a way in which you have this particular right to your one turtle, but you actually can also contribute to the whole, and the whole also has an incentive to be excited about whatever you do. So you know, briefly, as I was sort of sorting out my life between being a community organizer and being a um, being a journalist, I did a web comic for a while that no one read. Um, but if I had done that, if I had decided to do a webcomic when NFTs were a thing, I could have bought an NFT and I could have, I could have been like, I like my base turtle and I think I can make jokes about the base turtle. And, and all the, all they gave me was just this turtle with a picture and some properties of it. And I could, I could have started a webcomic and I would have had this, this inbuilt community of, you know, say 5,000 people who already were happy for anyone to drive attention to their community. So they would be automatically interested in my base turtle webcomic. And if it was at all good, they would all kind of promote it. Because the truth is, if my base turtle webcomic was good, then my base turtle would become more valuable. But I'm also driving attention to the whole idea of base turtles, which is helping all of them, you know? And so everyone in that, and so there doesn't need to be a vote here. You know, no one cares. Um, No one need to decide that I make the base turtle webcomic. But I'm able to start driving eyeballs to base hurdles, and that's good for all base hurdles. So they all go up, and so they have an incentive to promote a webcomic, which is good for me, but it's also good for all of them. And so one of the things I think we might start to see with NFTs, and like I said, not too much of this has happened, but like people start making like 
videos, movies, silly things, but they're particular NFTs, but that, but some of them are kind of good and popular and that makes that NFT community do really well. And they, and that gives them an incentive to do more stuff like that. Right. And so that's kind of decentralized activity that doesn't require any kind of on chain activity. It's just sort of the nature of this group that has some common interest together and has a reason to be encouraging of people showing an initiative, you know? Well, one of the thing, things that I think is interesting about that is to look at the different um, licensing models, right? So the Board Ape Yacht Club, um, as far as I know, like all those things are more or less kind of, you know, the, the rights are, are transmitted to the NFT holder, and so they can make whatever derivative, you know, content they want to. Whereas other more conventional or traditional NFTs, you know, I'm thinking, you know, Marvel, Disney, those types, of course, you know, withhold all rights from the NFT holder. Like all you have essentially is a certificate of authenticity that you bought the certificate of authenticity and you cannot, you know, remix, reuse or do anything except, you know, for personal, you know, pleasure, read, you know, or look at the thing that you got. So I right. do, I, I like, I like what you're talking about because there are a number of projects, whether it's like crypto coven or, you know, I'm my, my avatar is from the alpha girl club. Like there are those, those attributes. There's also another um, NFT that I bought a while ago from um, Fiat Lux. And then there's one from Biopills, and each of these different, uh, communities are finding ways of using those attributes to create almost like narrative stories or video game content or, you know, based on rarities, of course, people are collecting for different aspects or attributes. But you can imagine staking those characters or staking those NFTs on certain types of stories or storylines. You know, one of the th- uh, other NFTs that I got a while ago was for um, the the Matrix uh, Resurrections. And you could choose, of course, to either blue pill or red pill your NFT, and it would trans, you know, a sort of, uh, what's the word? I don't know. It would mutate your NFT you know, from something that was, you know, immutable to something that is mutable to its matrix, you know, versioned character. And so there are things like that that start to, I think, hint at different participation aspects and then characters actually being featured in um, pop culture, you know, contexts. So I think those things are actually super interesting. And the DAO structure allows for those who are the most, you know, active, ardent supporters to participate, to coordinate, to collaborate, and then to put their decision-making process on chain and to actually, you know, do things that are quite new and novel relative to the way in which collaboration might have happened previously. Totally. And we're even seeing, like, um, I'm going to try to share it in the chat here, but I just started a little while back. Sappy Seals is a, um, you know, it's an okay NFT line. I mean, they're worth, like, one ETH a piece, which is pretty decent, but they're, you know, small. You guys probably never heard of them. Um, but like they have a decent community and, and, but they've raised enough money that they, you know, have some bandwidth to do some things and they're trying to create this metaverse of kind of other NFT projects where there's, there, where there's a way that like kind of NFTs can move between kind of worlds they create for themselves and kind of this, like, you know, this kind of shared reality of basically a bunch of different cute animal NFTs and it's, I think it's a really interesting story of kind of a DAO of DAOs where like a bunch of kind of minor NFT DAOs that are still worth real money, but, you know, aren't getting in the Wall Street Journal kind of all team up to create a, a sum that is potentially greater, a whole that's greater than the potential sum of their parts. And so I just think we're seeing all kinds of interesting new ways of experimenting and coordination that are enabled by blockchain that we just really didn't see well before, which are enabled in part, like, let's be honest, by the fact that there is 
that these entities have money that they can, you know, move around and, and, and money is powerful and useful for me. Well, I mean, happen. like the token represents some ownership stake, right? And so your influence can actually be proportionate to whatever it is that you've actually invested. And your level of investment can be um, represented either in time or attention or hanging out a discord or being useful and helpful. And there are ways where the, I guess, you know, sort of organizers, uh, of these groups can acknowledge those who are actually being the most creative or supportive or helpful. Brady, uh, I've got a question uh, that's sort of a, a large one, so maybe easy to answer. What's the biggest DAO in the space? Like, the is there one that you could point to that's like the the most successful or the richest? Like, I was reading about Flamingo DAO this week. Um, I, 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 you know, it's 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 depending on your definition of success. I, I understand that, but like, you know, if you had to point to one DAO that's like, well, this is the eight hundred pound gorilla as of right now. Is there one? Huh. Wow. I mean, you know, I feel like I mentioned Curve. Um, Curve is this decentralized exchange that specializes in um, trades between tokens that are the same price. So, like, it specializes in stables coin swaps or swaps of, like, Bitcoin derivatives or whatever. That turned out to be really powerful. And they have this CRV token that is constantly admitted that is paid out to different people who provide liquidity to it. And that is, you know, most people agree that the emissions of CRV is the most powerful source of yield in um, decentralized finance. And so um, you can be tempted to be like, and, and Curve is run by a DAO. Um, this is a part of the wildness of crypto. Um, you, can be, you think I'm going to say that Curve is the most important DAO. Actually, this DAO that's on top of Curve called Convex is, I think, kind of becoming the 800-pound gorilla because for reasons that even are hard for me to understand, I mean, I have written like 3,000-word pieces on this, but um, but it just it's hard to hold on to. But with the particular way that the Curve DAO is structured um, – it's hard for anyone who's not like wildly, wildly wealthy to have any real influence in it. The only way you can really have influence is if you're a part of like a larger collective. And so Convex came along and I sort of think of it as a meta DAO. Like it's, it's a, it's, it's like true weird DeFi. Like it's, I mean, it's clever in the sense that like square is to block as curve is to convex. Anyways, continue. Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, right, right. Um, (laughs) So like, Convex is all it does is you is you you put your liquidity provider tokens into Convex as opposed to just using them yourself. And Convex buys CRV, and then you participate in Convex to decide what Curve does. And so, so and because Curve is so powerful in terms of like getting yield in DeFi, because Convex has become the most powerful thing in the Curve ecosystem, Convex is in a weird way kind of becoming more powerful than even the curve DAO. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy thing, but like, um, and, and this is sort of an only in crypto sort of thing. And it's, and it has to do with the, the sort of the particular way curve was set up. Um, but also the people behind curve have no problem with the way convex is working. It seems to be working out. It seems to be very synergistic, but I guess I think those are kind of the really big ones, but yeah, I guess I don't know who like the biggest, most important DAO is. Well, because then the thing is, because so many of them, it just DAOs are just like a way of doing things, but many of them aren't mm-hmm. all in competition with each other. You know, they're, they're doing wildly different things. They just have, sort of have a common sort of semi-common structure under the hood. 
Do you have a sense for just like how many like there are that are actually, I don't know, of some persistence and, you know, likelihood to stick around? I mean, like, is the, and I, I, I hate to say it this way, but like sort of like the Facebook of DAOs, does it exist right now in sort of a small shape that'll grow and expand in the next, you know, five, 10, 15 years? That was years? kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, that was kind of my prior, but it's just like, it's, it's, I mean, not to. And it may not be irrelevant. It's, 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 it's like, you know, it's not a great question. Yeah. It's, it's like. It's like what's the what's the Facebook of corporations? You know, it's, like an, it's organizational structure. You know, it's like just like like I don't know. It's just. Well, I, I, I think what I mean in, in terms of like things that will last and grow that, you know, have some, I don't know. I think Board Ape Yacht Clubs like is in a very, you know, good position in terms of moving right, forward. Right. That's the, that, that, that would be a perfect analogy. Like who would be the Board Ape Yacht, Yacht Club of DAOs? But I see what Brady you're saying. Yeah, I do is too. Is that it's, it's a it meaningless like question. A, yeah, it's a meaningless yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> let me let me come at this another way. Um, uh, if you're uh, Andreessen Horowitz with their new three billion dollar um, crypto, crypto fund, fund. Mm-hmm. is there um, where's the room for traditional like Wall Street or or VC money to get involved in DAOs? Is is it is it just about like getting involved early and making sure you have tokens when they're available or like, do you know what I mean? Like, are, are DAOs friendly to di- traditional investment money? Well, you know, I'm I'm sharing a couple of things in the in the um, the tweets in the um, in the space right now that I think kind of speak to this. You know, I think one way in which traditional Wall Street firms can get involved right now is I think a lot of them run um, kind of software as a service companies or they run, you know, sort of back end business. They have investments in back end business companies that do good things for traditional businesses. I think I think if I were running, you know, Quicken right now, I would be asking myself, how can we make a DAO friendly version? You know, Um, like these are very big companies that have a ton of money. And uh, but they do function a different way. How can we take existing expertise that we've had that's worked in the prior business world and make a version of our product that works well for this new kind of organization that has lots of money to spend? I mean, that's what I would if I was in Wall Street, that's what I would be thinking about right now. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. 
Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Or does it always work? Well, but see, what, what the Wall Street answer to that would be is we're in the business of a product, like, does it, does it tend to work best? Is it, are we always thinking in terms of community where the community, as opposed to the users are the product, the users are the community and the owners as well? Like, do you, oh, yeah, you, they you own know it. what I'm saying? Like, yeah, right. Like who, who would, who would have a stake or be interested in, <laughs> uh, you know, tax software or something like that. Right. Um, I don't even know if I asked a question, but like maybe maybe that's why we're having a hard time figuring this out because it's like there are certain things that necessarily a, a, a DAO wouldn't be good for because no one would would care. Well, I mean, I I I think we'll see DAOs invade a lot of things. I I, I just think it's too early for us to. I, I don't know. It's it's a tough question. Um, what could Wall Street do? I mean, yeah, the pure thing Wall Street could do is they could just start buying a bunch of tokens and sort of making bets. That's, of course, a thing they can do. But I, I think they're just we are far enough in to know that um, that this stuff is going to work out. And so um, they could sort of build on successes they've already had in, pro, pro, in prior world by providing services to this space. But um you know who owns DAOs is a really interesting question right now, which is I don't know that's that's still getting that's still getting sorted out. It, it yeah. isn't really the users. Hmm. It, I mean, it kind of makes sense that that you know if if Wall Street and banking or whatever were to provide some you know services, I guess, but their risk profile would almost I think prohibit them from really engaging. You know, like it would have to be sort of a new minded bank that's doing things differently and is you know like. You know, it feels weird. Um, Brady, I got one more question for you before we wrap, um, and then you can plug whatever you like. The question really is just, what are what's what's the question that Brian and I didn't ask you that we should be asking to better understand what's going on with DAOs and where you think they might go in 2022? Um, well, I guess, you know, I mean, I think you guys asked a, a lot of good questions. I think the thing... I think the thing that we're all still trying to understand and figure out is um, is how much are DAOs? You know, they're they're like you you, you guys shared the link of the Lao in in there. Yeah, the and, Lao is actually and, pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're 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 a great group. I've known I've known Aaron and Priyanka who are behind that for a long time, but they are kind of taking this model of like. Um, you know, this is how you make DAOs work within sort of traditional legal structure and, and, and kind of, you know, kind of work with that and kind of, and accept sort of the, the model that we're all given. And there's other DAOs that are like yearn that are being like, how can we just like completely be cypherpunk and push back against everything and kind of only exist <laughs> right. on the internet, you know? Right. right. And I, and I think, um, I think what's interesting about DAOs is sort of like figuring out how, new ways of participating are going to, um, are going to emerge. Cause you know, it's very feasible that you could be, that we could have people who 
like do work for very short periods of time. Like that's their whole thing that they sort of bounce from doubt to doubt because there's one thing they're good at that only takes ever, it only ever takes three months. They sort of bounce around forever. They never really have jobs again. There could be people who really know how to make DAOs. Like, so the whole, the whole, um, what's, it's, a, it's like, it's like BlackRock or whatever. The, 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 the venture funds that are good at like dealing with distressed companies, there could be people out there who only ever invest in DAOs when they're actually going to pieces, you know? Mm, and so wow. when they mm, see a DAO yeah. going to pieces, they right. buy a ton of it. And yep. then they get really actively involved in governance and they fix like it rejuvenated. and the token yeah. value mm-hmm. goes up and they just sell it. Huh. And, that, and, and like, but they do it in a, and they don't need to buy the whole thing. They just need to buy enough to have voice. And then they, they do that and they do it again and again. So there's just, there's just whole new, I, I think what's interesting about DAOs is there's going to be whole new ways in which for people to engage. And a lot of it could be like a lot more short term and some of it could be like a lot more long term and could be, and it could have a lot, it could be a lot more meaningful. They, it could, there's people who, their participation in a DAO, it, it isn't a job, it's their identity, right? And there's just going to be this whole continuum of people who specialize in doing really quick stuff and people for whom a DAO runs much deeper than a job, right? And so I think that continuum is what's interesting about DAOs and we're going to see play out uh, more and more. So it isn't really a question you didn't ask, but I just sort of think that's a, yeah. that, is a design, that is a human design space that they open up that is we just, who knows, it's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that happens. And let me, let me ask you one more question. Um, just in terms of like getting involved and participating, you sort of said, you know, just show up, start doing things. However, one of my thoughts and questions is like, what is the level of technical sophistication that's actually needed to participate in this space? You know, and I know that there's more and more tools that are coming out to make this possible, but it feels like they're like the, the, the learning curve is still incredibly steep. So what's your just, yeah. you know, sense of that? Yeah, I mean, look, there's no question. Like, like I said, you know, anyone can get involved, and if they are talented, you will be valued, and and some DAO will find a place for you. But there's also no question that the, the most valuable thing out there is rockstar coders, and that's always true, right? So, yeah. um, you know, but there's a lot. There is, there is. I think there is a lot of levels. So I just think people need to kind of follow their heart and figure out what speaks to them, but. Um, I think, you know, I, like one of the things, for example, that we've seen, I, you don't have to be like a total rock star to start to get a place and, and, start, and sort of earn some cred. You know, one of the things we've seen in Ethereum kind of jerk, through DeFi summer and kind of the N- NFT kind of dawn that happened after it is a lot of coders who were, you know, they weren't rock star coders, but they, they kind of learned a little bit of how blockchains works and they learned a little bit of front end stuff. A lot of people went out and just built um, websites that provide that made different aspects of crypto more legible. You know, they just yeah. told you right. what was going on here and there, and people would just do that to show that they could do some things and they had some skills. And everyone found that useful. And a lot of people who did that kind of thing ended up getting you know nice roles either at companies or within DAOs. So um, obviously, technical skills are super valuable. But people who are good at marketing or good at driving attention to things or good at getting people excited or good community managers, you know, that's all valuable, too. I think you just need to, like, look at what you're good at and what you're excited about and, you know, kind of come to them with an open heart and open mind and look for where things aren't getting done and what's needed and see if you can't pitch in there. Um, And obviously, if you can, the smarter you are, the better off you'll be. But it does seem like there are. When you look around crypto Twitter, like every CEO, that's the second part of their of their 
name is we're hiring. They're all hiring because they all have money. But then there's all these downs that don't even really hire. They just sort of pay people yeah, doing right. work. You know, it's like bounties. So there's just, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many opportunities out there. I don't think anyone should get discouraged by not having technical skills. But if you have any technical aptitude, I would say, well, maybe develop that. That might be good. Cool. Brady, this was super helpful. Very informative. Yes. Uh, love having you here is, you know, I, I got it wrong in the beginning. But do you want to talk about The Defiant or anything else that you think people should check out? Sure. Yeah. Come to the Defiant. Um, yeah. Uh, the Defiant is the site that I work for now. I was at Coindesk for a long time. I joined the Defiant in July. Um, you know, it's decentralized finance. It's kind of decentralized finance. A lot of um, we also cover NFTs a lot because, you know, NFTs are the property of the Internet and there's <laughs> nothing finance loves as much as property. So um, if you're interested in those things, you know, we're small and scrappy and new, but come check us out. We do a lot of deep dives and always have unique angles and like the latest crypto news. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, and, you know, follow, please follow me on Twitter. It's, it's the best Twitter account. Yes. And let me, let me, it, it'll be in the title of the show, but let me spell it out. It's at Brady Dale. Like he just said, um, Brady is my go-to for crypto stuff. Like very often when Ooh. I'm working on mm-hmm. writing a show and something will come up and I'll, I'll DM him and I'll be like, Brady, what's this, what's going on? And he's also very generous. He will, he will tip me. Hey, Brian, you might want to take a look at this. So um, I can't recommend more highly following uh, Brady on Twitter and all his writings and all that great stuff. And that's the defiant.io. Yeah, uh, defiant news on Twitter. Cool. Amazing. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. And we will probably be back here next week. Thanks, everybody. Peace. Peace.